Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. Well, here we are, the third quarter of 2004. During this period, I would start my second full year of college and have a very short stint at a seasonal Halloween store. That's right, I had my patented worst job ever during this quarter. During the summer, I started the job that I would have for most of college as a quote-unquote auditor, counting inventory at stores across the valley. But for some reason, I decided to put that aside for the fall and apply for a seasonal job at a Halloween store. Let me tell you, boys and girls, when you're at an intersection waving a sign for the Halloween store dressed up in whatever garish costume, people are honking their horns at you, kind of laughing, that's when you learn the word dignity. They eventually let me go from the job, probably because I had the attitude that I didn't really want to be there. And that was that. Personal stories out of the way, let's get back to why we're here, the music. We start off this episode with the week ending July 3rd, 2004. Spending two weeks at the top of the charts, it's the return of the Talking Heads with Life During Wartime. time of recording this episode, October 2020, we are one month away from a very highly contested, big-time charged election in a year unlike any other. Yes, ladies and germs, it does feel like life during wartime right now, I'll tell you that much. Maybe in the days leading up to the election, I'll get some groceries, some peanut butter, to last a couple of days. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying you don't want to hear my apocalyptic rants about the state of the world? Alright, I'll talk about this apocalyptic-sounding song. The version that I sampled was the one I got to know at the time. The live version from Stop Making Sense. Thus, I heard this years before I heard the original from 1979's Fear of Music, four years before the Stop Making Sense tour. And even though it's a great performance on the album, My ears still prefer this more rounded-out live version. It does sound more fun than the sparse album version, in no small part due to more musicians on the live version. 
including P-Funk man Bernie Worrell on keyboards. I just realized that as of now, there are only two Talking Heads songs that reached number one on my charts, Psycho Killer from two years earlier, and this one. So I might as well say a few words about my favorite Talking Heads album that the song came from, Fear of Music. Some musical mind on the internets made some brilliant comment about this album. The majority of the songs have one-word titles, Air, Dogs, Mind, Paper, and This Guy or Girl said, Each song could have an alternate title, Fear Of, like Fear of Cities, Fear of Paper, Fear of Drugs, Fear of Life During Wartime. David Byrne approaches each subject like he doesn't know a whole lot about the subject, but he's still scared as hell of each subject. In the case of Life During Wartime, David Byrne says about the unrest that was going on in the late 70s, like stuff in Tompkins Square Park or Patty Hearst. He said it was about living in Alphabet City, Manhattan at the time. I know just enough about New York City in the 1970s that it was a pretty terrible place to be. Very challenging, scary at times, but also creative, with the Mud Club and CBGB, two places where the Talking Heads cut their teeth in the 70s and are mentioned in the song. Like the very best Talking Heads songs, you could quote this for days. Of course, the one everyone knows about, the chorus, This Ain't No Party, This Ain't No Disco, This Ain't No Foolin' Around, which may or may not have inspired Sheryl Crow to start off her big hit All I Want to Do with This Ain't No Disco, This Ain't No Country Club, whatever. For me, I go more towards the peanut butter and groceries line I mentioned earlier, or I got three passports, a couple of visas, they don't even know my real name, or my favorite, I've changed my hairstyle so many times now, I don't know what I look like. As I said earlier, this live version is quite a bit different. And visually, it's a gas, as David, Tina, and the backing vocals all do jogging in place, and David's his usual spastic self on stage. Really, you can't go wrong with either version of this song, but since I'd recommend Fear of Music before Stop Making Sense, that'll be the version you hear first, if you follow my recommendation. For each of the last three weeks in July, we have three number ones, spending one week each at number one. Here's the first of these, the week ending July 17th. It's Joe Cocker and The Letter. Joe Cocker. If it were easier to find Saturday Night Live clips on YouTube, I'd say check out the performance he did of Feeling Alright with John Belushi doubling as his understudy, so to speak. 
It sums up what Joe Cocker's about in a nutshell. Very gritty, white boy soul voice. Very spastic movements while he's singing. Despite rumors, those movements were not some medical condition. According to the man himself, it was born out of frustration of not being able to perform an instrument while singing on stage. He would get so much into the song he was singing that he'd play air guitar or do whatever just to give his hands something to do to let out his instrument envy, I guess you can call it. I will admit I got off to a rocky star with Joe Cocker. The first song of his I heard a lot was his cover of Billy Preston's You Are So Beautiful. At a young age of five or six or whatever, that was one of my first least favorite songs of all time along with I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner. Maybe I was just scared of his vocal antics. Who knows? Unlike the Foreigner song, I don't have hate for You Are So Beautiful anymore, especially since learning that Dennis Wilson allegedly co-wrote the song, even though he's not credited, and he would perform it at Beach Boys concerts in the late 70s up until his death in 83, knowing how sloppy, drunk, depressed he was adds a little poignancy. But hey, we're talking about The Letter. As y'all know, this was originally a song by The Box Tops in 1967, where the lead singer Alex Chilton was 16 going on 45 in the song. Their original was less than two minutes long, whereas this Joe Cocker cover is twice that and then some. Just like the last number one, this is a live recording, hailing from his 1969-1970 tour Mad Dogs and Englishmen, where he had this huge all-star backing band, most notably piano player Leon Russell. I haven't heard the full album, but it's said to be a big, long party, and you can sure hear that in this song. Joe Cocker rings out every verse, chorus, and bridge much longer than on the original. It's got this killer horn lick that wasn't anywhere on the Box Tops version. Bum, 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 bum. Organ solos, backup vocals, horn sections. It sounds like a gas. Despite that, my Joe Cocker experience has only been limited to greatest hits albums. The only other song of his to appear on my charts was Feeling Alright, peaking at number 6 in June 2003. Maybe someday I'll listen to his albums, including that live one. Maybe not. We'll see. Replacing Joe Cocker at number 1 the week ending July 24th, a band that might surprise you and kind of surprises me, the scourge of nowadays popular music, Maroon 5. Here's This Love. Is this where I have to say nice things about Maroon 5? Uh, 
As you all know, Maroon 5 is one of the most consistently hit-making groups of the 2000s and the 2010s, even though they've slowly become more and more the Adam Levine machine. Well, I suppose it's kind of interesting that this came from their debut album, which had been released two years prior in July 2002, but really didn't make a dent until it got a re-release in October of the next year, thanks to the success of their first single, Harder to Breathe. I mean, that's kind of neat, right? Sleeper hit, word of mouth. And by this time, July 2004, the song had already been on heavy rotation on the pop stations for the last few months. In fact, I think I could call this my first inventory number one. I'd mentioned earlier, this was the summer where I started counting inventory at retail stores across the country as sort of a summer-slash-college job. So I got more exposure to popular-type music than I had been before, since that's usually what was playing at the grocery stores. And something like this was ideal for that kind of setting. It's very much a pop-rock song, or it could be classified as adult alternative. Although a few of the lyrics had to be cut out for play on those kind of stations. Each of the first two verses had a stanza that had some explicit drug or sex reference. Like, I was so high in the first verse. Keep her coming every night in the second verse. I feel like the case of the latter, that was one where I should have seen the warning signs from Rune 5. That Adam Levine was going to talk about sexy sex and sound pretty damn pleased with himself in the process. Yes, it is a breakup song, but Adam can't help but humble brag that the sex was pretty damn good. I'd never seen the music video for this, but I read that it's a typical affair of Adam Levine showing off whatever girlfriend he has at the time, making out and all that. I don't mean to come across as a prude or anything. It doesn't shock or offend me. Just kind of makes me roll my eyes. Since, as we all know, Adam Levine loves himself some Adam Levine. But the song itself is easily the best thing that Maroon 5 has ever done by a country mile. It's a perfectly cool little piano-heavy song. Adam Levine's voice isn't quite as obnoxious as it usually is. Well-constructed, doesn't really wander off a lot. As they say, even a bad poet can come up with a really good work of art or a song once in a while. But of course, any hope that Maroon 5 would have another good song up their sleeves was washed away by their next single, She Will Be Loved, which I heard even more in the inventory years than this love, and I really don't care for. But look, I said something semi-nice about a Maroon 5 song. I've said enough, let's move on. With one week at number one, it's Joe Jackson again, with On Your Radio and I'm the Man. Here's a little bit of On Your Radio. Second album, same as the first album. 
Yeah, these songs come from Joe Jackson's sophomore offering, I'm the Man. And actually, it was released the same year as Look Sharp. Look Sharp was March 1979, and I'm the Man was October 1979. Like a good deal of the rest of the album, these two songs pick up where Look Sharp left off. Same kind of fast-paced, new wave sound, with some bitter vocals by Joe Jackson. It must be said that the songs on I'm the Man are a touch more mature than those on Look Sharp, in that he's not quite as incelly on this album. Talking about failed relationships or dysfunctional relationships, hmm, just like Elvis Costello. But judging by On Your Radio, the bitterness is still strong in Mr. Jackson. As you could tell, On Your Radio is a slam at everyone who's ever bullied him or dumped him or yelled at him. School teachers, bosses, ex-girlfriends, classmates, maybe even mom and dad. Screw you guys, I'm on the radio now! Yeah, sure, living well's the best revenge, but maybe he could have stood to be a little more mature about it. Oh well, it's a catchy song, and it went over quite well when I saw him live in 2018. The other song in the number one slot, I'm the Man, is basically the same song as on your radio without the bitterness. Same kind of fast-paced new wave beat, but this time Joe Jackson's talking about a guy who's willing to sell himself out for whatever the latest fad is. I'm the man who brought you the hula hoop, the yo-yo. Listening to this album years later, these two songs were not the best on the album. Instead, my favorite track was stuck in number two behind these songs, It's Different for Girls, which was more of a mid-tempo piece, talking about how one gender wants love, the other just wants sex. But in Joe's case, it's not the gender you'd think who wants each respective one. And speaking of his live show, he started the show with this song, just him and the bass player. Very cool way to start. After these songs, Joe Jackson more or less disappeared from my charts for the next dozen years. We'll see him again, but that's about 13 years on. So, fare thee well for now, Mr. Jackson. Heading into the month of August, we got another two-week chart topper. The week ending August 7th, here's another song that you might remember from the 30-day song challenge. They might be giants with Birdhouse in Your Soul. You can hear me go on and on and on about Birdhouse in Your Soul in day 11 of the 30-day song challenge, which is a song that you never get tired of. I'll try not to repeat myself in this episode, but that's one song I never can get tired of. It's the first They Might Be Giants song I knew about since those two songs played on Tiny Toons back in 1991. And it's my favorite song of theirs. Now, in that episode I talked about, it was a convergence of things that led me to find out this song. The first being a website in the web reviewing community, where the reviewer Rich Bunnell talks glowingly about They Might Be Giants, highlighting this song, saying it was number six in the UK of all places. And secondly, there was yet another I Love Those around VH1, this time I Love the 90s, and they played a snippet of this song when talking about Dances with Wolves. You know, the, the, the Kevin Costner movie, 1990, beat Goodfellas for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Nah. So once again, VH1 strikes, and they're responsible at least partly for They Might Be Giants being one of my favorite groups throughout college. And trust me, we'll come across these guys again and again and again when I get to the 2005, 2006, 2007 episodes. So, to reiterate, listen to Day 11 of the 30 Day Song Challenge and fall in love with this song as I have. That is an order. Replacing TMBG at number one, it's The Clash again. 
They spent three weeks at number one, with the lead-off two tracks from their 1980 album Sandinista. Here's The Magnificent Seven and Hitsville, UK. And for the first time in my podcast history, I'm providing a double sample. They're just so good. And your bankers too Let's get up and learn those rules When the man and the crazy chief One says sun and one says sea AM and FM the PM too Turning out that boogaloo Get you up and I guess you out But how long can you keep it up Give me Honda, give me Sonic So cheap and real falling Hong Kong dollar, Indian cents English pounds and Eskimo pence Sandinista, a triple album that The Clash released in 1980 to follow up their smash London Calling. It's an intriguing, exciting, frustrating, bloated mess. If London Calling was a pretty diverse album, Sandinista makes it look like an ACDC album. The Clash tackled so many different styles here. Besides punk, rock, and reggae, they also dipped into gospel, funk, calypso, rockabilly. But as to be expected with triple albums, 36 songs in total, there's a lot of filler, a lot of guff. You got dub versions of songs that would have been better off as B-sides, a few vamps, a song that's mostly backward samples of a previous song on the album, and it's all fused together by a weird production sound, dense and echo-filled, that makes everything sound a little bit muffled. I thought that The Clash recorded a triple album to try and use up a record contract, but allegedly that wasn't the case. According to Joe Strummer, it was them sticking it to CBS Records, because getting CBS Records to release the double album London Calling was like pulling teeth, and then they turn around a year later and they release The River by Bruce Springsteen, a double album. Strummer and Jones and company, I guess, wanted to stick it to CBS. And hence, Sandinista. Yeah, I took the same approach as I did with Get Happy by Elvis Costello, and I only listened to one half of the album at a time to really assimilate the songs. And as mentioned, these two songs kicked off the album. The Magnificent Seven was one of the first attempts by a major white artist to do rap. It came as no surprise to me to learn that the song started with that bass lick. If I ever learn to play the bass guitar, that bass lick's going to be the first one I learn. Now I'm going to play it over and over and over and over. It's one of my favorites ever. But let me tell you, I was so bummed out to learn that that wasn't the regular Clash bassist Paul Simonon who came up with that bass lick. 
During part of the album recording, he was off filming a movie, so they had Ian Dury and the Blockheads bassist Norman Watts Roy fill in for him, and it was he who came up with that lick. Not as disillusioning as finding out that George Harrison didn't play the guitar solo on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, but it's up there. Back to the song. Strummer came up with most of the words on the spot, just rapping and improvising. Something like a day-in-the-life account of a young man working in New York City, going to work and being distracted by other things. The Clash did record much of this album in New York, so they obviously soaked up the early rap influences going on in the streets. It seems hip to bash on the song, saying that it's kind of stiff and his rapping's not that good, but I don't care. Perhaps I'm just in love with that bass lick, but it's a great song. And it's followed up by something completely different, Hitsville UK. Whereas the last one was a Joe Strummer vehicle, this one is Mick Jones. It's a freaking gorgeous sounding song, really. Just a tight musical performance, sounding like something from Motown. And the melody sung by Mick Jones and his then-girlfriend Ellen Foley, of Meatloaf fame, so damn melodic, it makes me tear up almost. The subject matter of the song kind of reminds me of Video Killed the Radio Star, but instead it talks about the indie scene in the late 70s, early 80s, and a lot of UK labels are referenced like Small Wonder, Factory, Rough Trade. A lot of these groups might have a fluke hit single, but with radio becoming more and more homogenized and controlled, there was not much chance that they were going to get radio airplay, but they didn't care. Just so many great lines here. No expense accounts, no lunch discounts, no hyping up the charts. The band went in and knocked them dead in 2 minutes 59. Yeah, the boy felt all alone till the Hitsville hit UK. Oh, it's wonderful. I have a distinct memory of when I first listened to this album, I was driving to a friend's house, just a little bit uptown, and the ride was long enough to make me hear the first two songs. And when I got out of the car into his house, I was thinking, man, this is going to be the best album ever. Of course, it fell short of that, but it's still one of the best one-two punches opening an album that I know of, like back in the USSR, Dear Prudence on the White Album, or on the prior Clash album, London Calling in Brand New Cadillac. So hopefully you'll understand now why I provided the double sample, which I haven't done before in my two-sided number ones. They both mean so much to me in that context and by themselves. After three weeks in number one, The Clash were replaced by, uh, themselves. Yeah, the week ending September 11th, it's two weeks in number one with some more Santa Anisa tracks, Police on My Back, and Charlie Don't Surf. Here's a snippet of Charlie Don't Surf.
here we are on the second half of Sandinista. Should have clarified earlier, but while Sandinista was a triple album, when it was released on CD, it was a two-CD set, each CD containing 18 songs. So I meant to say I focused on one CD at a time. And during this period, I focused on CD2 of Sandinista. Of the two CDs, this one was the weaker of the two. And it's almost like the band saw that way too, because a lot of the novelties and dub versions were placed on the last quarter of the CD, or the third album, rather. Police on My Back opened up the CD and Side 4 on the LP. And although it's one of the songs most reminiscent of Clash's early sound, it itself is a cover. The song was originally done by The Equals, a very influential British group from the late 60s, one of the first biracial groups out there. They had a number one hit in their native UK in 1968 with Baby Come Back, a really cool little Mersey Beat type song, but with elements of ska or blue beat. The original Police On My Back sounds very much the same as Baby Come Back, and both songs were written by band member Eddie Grant, Even though he wasn't the group's lead singer, he'd go on to have a successful solo career ten years later. Electric Avenue, you know. The Clash's version is very tight, kind of like their version of I Fought the Law. The most brilliant touch was the siren-sounding guitar. The song I provided a sample of, Charlie Don't Surf, is later on in the album. And it's very melodic and eerie as hell. It's funny how my brother and I came to different conclusions listening to the chorus for the first time. He heard, Charlie, don't surf, and started singing, My boyfriend's back, and you're gonna be in trouble. But meanwhile, I heard the chord progression, and I started singing, Don't throw your love away. No, 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 Charlie, don't surf. In other words, it's a retro-sounding melody at times. It's got sitars, or maybe a fake sitar throughout. Keyboards imitating a helicopter at the start of the song. A great duet between Strummer and Jones, where they sing the exact same melody on top of each other. But what does the song mean? Well, the first interpretation I heard was Charlie Don't Surf was Charlie Manson, but I knew just a very, very tiny amount of Apocalypse Now to catch that it was inspired by that movie. In fact, the line Charlie Don't Surf was muttered by one of the characters, I think Robert Duvall's. And of course, Charlie's gonna be a napalm star. You know, he loves the smell of napalm in the morning. Just like that movie, the song takes place in the Vietnam War, and an agreed-upon interpretation is that it's from the perspective of a Viet Cong soldier really suspicious about American imperialism and us forcing our culture onto them without it being asked. Because that's American stuff. Surfing, Coca-Cola, Hamburger Mama, USA, USA. Before we move on, I have to share an anecdote I just read about. Allegedly, Joe Strummer saw Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears at a restaurant years after this song came out and said, Hey, you owe me a fiver because the first line of the first verse half of the chorus, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, would later be the title of Tears for Fears' biggest hit five years on. According to Strummer, Orzabal just simply reached into his pocket, pulled out a five-pound note, gave it to Strummer, and basically said, You got me. I figured maybe that was a common phrase, and not specific to the class or Tears for Fears. But hopefully that story's true, because it's pretty funny. Anyway, I gotta make the most of freedom and of pleasure, because nothing ever lasts forever. So let's get out of Clashland and on to the next song. 
The final number one in this episode, it's a two-week number one by that crazy guy, Frank Zappa and the Mothers, but then some stupid with a flare gun burned the place to the ground. Oh wait, that's a different song. On the week ending September 25th, it was Hungry Freaks Daddy and Trouble Every Day. Here's a sample of the former. Mr. America, walk on by your schools that do not teach. Mr. America, walk on by the minds that won't be reached. Mr. America, try to hide the emptiness that's you inside. But once you find that the way you lied and all the corny tricks you tried will not forestall the rising tide of hungry freaks, Daddy. Now, as you all know, I'm quite the avid music listener and music tracker down. I like to find whole discographies of artists, find new artists. But one thing not on my music listenership goals is listen and analyze the whole Frank Zappa catalog. Yeah, no, that guy released a lot of albums in his lifetime. He passed away from cancer in 1993, but still found time to release, I don't even want to count how many albums. The web reviewers that I admire the most, John McFerrin and George Stairston, have taken upon themselves to review his entire catalog, which I think took months. I'll leave that task to them and look at their website for high reviews and which albums I should pick and choose from. These songs, though, they come from a very essential Frank Zappa album. His first one in 1966 with the mothers of invention, Freak Out! one of the first double albums made in rock music. Over half of the album sounds like unassuming doo-wop or rhythm and blues songs, but each of them sounds subverted in the twisted Frank Zappa tradition. These two songs were from the other concept of the album, him taking a look at the L.A. scene, the freak scene, and not really liking it. The song I didn't play, Trouble Every Day, was inspired by the Watts riots in 1965, and I already had my rant about Song X sounds all the more actual now as it did back then with Life During Wartime. But suffice to say, it's a really good kind of Dylan-esque rant about the world with no irony whatsoever. Meanwhile, Hungry Freak's Daddy was the song that opened up the album. And it starts with a kind of a can't-get-no-satisfaction riff. Although, in my ears, it always reminded me of a different song. That, of course, would be Fire by The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, and incidentally, one of my favorite songs ever made by anybody. But that song came two years after Hungry Freak's Daddy, so you can call Fire a Mothers of Invention type song. Hungry Freak's Daddy just looks at the breakdown of American culture, at least the way Frank Zappa saw it. Lashing out at consumer culture, the great Midwestern hardware store, liquor store supreme, supermarket dream and the left-behinds of the great society. Between that and his album We're Only In It For The Money That Attacks Hippies, it's safe to say that Frank Zappa wasn't a stereotypical liberal. 
He was against censorship, and he'd always try to bug the squares. He didn't like organized religion. Maybe you can call him a music libertarian? I don't know. But like I said, I might not be the foremost Frank Zappa expert, but I think Freak Out is a pretty great place to start. It's obvious he was insanely talented and diverse as a musician, and I think you get a lot of sides of him on this album. Not wholly inaccessible either, like a lot of his stuff is. It's a good listen, check it out. As is customary, let's round things out with a couple of honorable mentions. The first two weeks of August contained some songs by acts that I didn't really feature a lot in my charts in the past, but would soon become major stalwarts. They Might Be Giants is one of them, of course, but number two was Run, Run Away by Slade. Number seven, How Soon Is Now by The Smiths. Number eight, Free Will by Rush. Another notable entry during Frank Zappa's reign at number one, Green Day spent a couple weeks in the charts, topping at number seven with the title track from American Idiot. As I said before, that was a zeitgeist that I completely missed out on. And of course, songs from Sandinista were all over the charts in August and September. I will end this episode with one of those, topping out at number two behind Charlie Don't Surf. It's Lose This Skin, and keeping up with the Anything Goes tradition of Sandinista. The lead singer is not one of the guys from Clash, but someone who sounds a lot like the artist I mentioned just a minute earlier. You'll find out when you listen. It's not the guy, just someone who sounds a lot like the guy. As always, thank you so much for listening to Music Is My Radar. We'll see you next week for the final quarter of 2004. Quite a tumultuous one, actually. But we'll keep it lighthearted. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.